Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode are Lisa Malamat and Jeff Bemis, the co-directors and producers of an award-winning documentary called Missing in Brooks County. The film follows two American families coming to Brooks County, Texas, in search of loved ones lost while attempting to cross into the United States from Mexico. According to the film, the area of Brooks County sees the highest quantity of migrant deaths in the country. Describing the area, the sheriff of Brooks County calls it the largest cemetery in the United States. The film also introduces us to Eddie Canales, the founder of the South Texas Human Rights Center, a bootstrap operation whose mission is to help reunite family members with missing loved ones. Every week, between taking nonstop calls from concerned families, Canales drives around the area, refilling and checking in on water stations that he's left throughout the brush to help dehydrated migrants stay alive. His efforts, as the film makes clear, are not universally applauded. Here's the film's trailer. The federal government thinks that you put the Border Patrol station 60 miles north, Jose is going to be stupid enough to go through there and then you'll catch him. And that's not true. The Border Patrol station is making these people walk in that deep sand with very little water. Sheriff's Office, let me help you. I'm trying to have some information regarding a family member who is missing. There's been a lot of, a lot of missing people. We realized there was a big problem along the border. And I don't think anybody realized just how big it was. Thousands of people have died. An illegal alien crosser is an illegal alien crosser. It's black and white, it's not gray. We're in a war zone here. This is the South Texas Human Rights Center. like you just walk off the earth. It's as if you never existed. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with Lisa Malamot and Jeff Bemis. Hello, Lisa Malamad and Jeff Bemis, the co-producers of a documentary called Missing in Brooks County. Welcome to you both to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Thank you, Michael. So Missing in Brooks County is a documentary that looks at uh, the issue of 
migrants who go missing in Brooks County, Texas, and often, way more often than not, they are not accounted for. It's a fascinating look at the devotion of some very committed people uh, to really giving a, a sense of humanity to these migrants who are who are coming from Mexico and they're passing a checkpoint that is about 70 miles north of the border. And if I understand, understand correctly, that checkpoint was uh, purposefully put in place as a deterrent way back during the Clinton administration. Uh, but Lisa, it hasn't turned out that way, has it? No, definitely not. Um, in fact, more migrants are coming now than in many, many years. So obviously, um, the the purpose was to deter migrants from coming um, into the United States from Mexico, from other parts of Central America. But no, unfortunately, um, migrants still have reasons to leave their home country. Um, there are a number of reasons that people leave. Um, some are fleeing gang violence. So they arrive in the United States and they're brought to south of the checkpoint in Brooks County and they get out of the car and they're forced to walk around this checkpoint on these private ranches in Brooks County, Texas. Some become dehydrated, some get lost and many are never seen again. So um, that's the story of our film. How did the phenomenon, Jeff, of what's ta- what, what has been taking place in Brooks County come to your attention? Well, Lisa and I had met each other at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. We were both teaching there and we both wanted to work on something together. And we heard a radio documentary about a forensic scientist at Baylor University in Texas, Lori Baker, who was exhuming anonymously buried migrant crossers in South Texas. And we were both just really moved by the story. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. Lisa had left and was now living in Tucson, a border city, and, and, you know, saw this issue among her community, among her students that she taught there. She's lived in Mexico. I have a sister-in-law from Mexico. I'm not sure, but we were really touched and we reached out to Lori Baker. She invited us out to Texas and she took us down to this place called Falfurious that we'd never heard of. And we said, okay, so where's the border? (laughs) She said, no, no, no. That's 70, 80 miles away. This isn't even a border county. This is Brooks County, but this is where the problem is. And I think that was the moment when the film began a process of pivoting to something else. And in fact, it it ended up being a four-year endeavor to document what was going on in Brooks County. How far down the one-story path had you been uh, in terms of filmmaking before you realized that the focus was going to shift? One day. Okay. (laughs) We began filming on a Sunday. Actually, I'm not even sure we did any filming on that day. Um, but it, it's what Jeff said when we we drove down to Brooks County from Waco, Texas, where Lori is based. We filmed for a few hours um, in Brooks County that first afternoon, and I, you know, I think we knew at that point, wow, this is this is something very different than we had thought. We thought we were making a short film about a forensic scientist. It would be done in less than a year, and and it just yeah, it pivoted very, very quickly. And, um, but, you know, we, it took a while to find the Romans, the family that are 
the feature story of the film. I think we were filming for about a year and a half before we met them. We had been filming with other families, um, but they reached out to us. They actually were Googling missing in Brooks County and found our website and they they emailed us and we said, well, we're coming to Houston where they're based, where they live in about a week. Why don't we meet up and talk? And we did that. And the next day we were filming with them. So. And there is a, a gentleman who uh, plays a pivotal role in the film. In fact, when the film opens, you're traveling with a man named Eddie Canales. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. How did you find Eddie and and explain for our audience uh, what he's all about? Because he's a pretty special individual. Well, Lori Baker introduced us to Eddie on that first trip. And in fact, we didn't get off to the best start because we were so fascinated by what we had been filming earlier in the day that we overstayed and we were very late meeting Eddie because we didn't, it just was a miscommunication about schedules. So he was kind of not too happy with us and we had to sort of earn it back. But yeah, Eddie runs the South Texas Human Rights Center, which is really the only humanitarian aid that is based right there on the ground in Brooks County in Palfurias. And he puts water out in the desert and he also takes calls from families of the missing and tries to coordinate searches, especially if somebody is actively missing and there's a chance of a rescue. And it's interesting because he had just really opened the center less than a year before we started filming. And so we kind of saw his operation grow and evolve and him sort of find his footing uh, as the, you know, as the person who runs that center. Yeah, the um, the opening minutes of the film present a very, very stark image as Eddie is driving along and a body is identified. I assume that was just happenstance. Tell me about how that impacted you both as filmmakers kind of in the moment. Yeah, well, that uh, we were out with Eddie um, doing water drops. He was filling up the water stations um, like he does often. We were also looking um, at a part of this particular ranch that might be the place where a search might happen for Omero Roman, who is the, the man who went missing, who is the main um, story of our film. So we were there, I mean, finding you know, finding a a dead person was the last thing I think on any of our minds. But as soon as we saw the vultures, we knew they were there for a reason. Yeah, it was, it was a really intense evening um, for all of us. Jeff and I had been filming for quite a while at that point. Um, So it does come in very early minutes of the film, but it definitely um, came later in the filming And something I have to say about working on this film, um, sometimes when, you know, you experience something, you become desensitized after a while. And with this this particular um, issue or or I don't 
don't even want to say it's an issue, but, you know, these circumstances of, of being exposed to um, these migrants who pass away in this very, very tragic and, and lonely way, um, it doesn't get any easier to observe and to experience. So that night, I think we were all really upset, um, angry. It just shouldn't be happening. And I couldn't help but think about what this death was like for this person who was so far from their country, so far from their loved ones. It was a lonely death. Um, it's very, you know, these ranches are huge. She was, you know, in the middle of this ranch, nothing around. Um, and it just must have been just a, a horrible experience for this person. And um, yeah, it was not something I will ever forget. You know, it, it, it's an interesting distinction that you, that you made. When I asked the question, uh, I uh, not even purposefully said, and, and they came across a body and you said a person. And there is a believe it's a, a Border Patrol agent in the film who says we call them bodies. If you start calling them people, then it gets to you. Say a little bit more about that, if you could, Jeff. That's a really telling remark from that border agent, uh, you know, Essentially, the Border Patrol agents that we met were by and large decent people, but they were given the task of enforcing some brutal policies. And when he makes that remark, it's clear he is struggling to emotionally cope with his job. That's how he says that. I, I mean, some people have felt that's very dehumanizing, and it is. It's an example of another example of the dehumanization of migrants. But in the context of that scene, you can see he's doing it to protect himself. And we did talk to other agents who also suffered PTSD. And I think that comment says as much about the policy he has to enforce as it does about him. Clearly, something's gone very wrong in the way we are administering our borders. And Eddie himself is not universally embraced as a humanitarian uh, in Brooks County. Uh, there, there's a ranger, I believe his name is uh, Mike Vickers, um, who essentially accuses Eddie of uh, aiding and smuggling uh, the uh, illegal migrants. Um, when you encounter that type of oppositional opinion, how did you maintain sort of a journalistic remove uh, and, and for instance, not ask him, or, or perhaps you did, um, well, what's your evidence of that? Or, or was that just a path you chose not to go down? I think we probably did ask him, you know, what makes you think that? Um, you know, it, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, it was interesting filming with Mike Vickers because he's someone that believes what he believes so strongly um, in terms of this issue and feels like a victim in all of this. Um, I don't think he was thinking too much about us and, and our politics. And I think for us, we, you know, our job as filmmakers, you know, is we were making a verite film. We were listening to him. I mean, we, we definitely would ask him more questions, but I don't, yeah, I, I, we knew Eddie very well at that point. So we knew that that accusation was absurd, but what was more interesting was the fact that he, he believes it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's the part that I think I was trying to understand at that moment was like, how is it that he could believe that? And there's no answer to that. But um, it's it was less about the accusation, because, of course, we already knew Eddie very well at that point. And then there was another there's another sequence in the film where you're out at night uh, with what is essentially an ad hoc uh, militia of sorts. Um, I believe they refer to themselves as the Texas Border Volunteers. And, uh, you know, one individual um, makes makes the claim that, uh, you know, we got to catch these folks because they, you know, they could be terrorists. They could be sleeper cells. And this is how we get destroyed from within again. There's no judgment in the film, uh, you know, around qualifying those those comments. What was that experience like? How did you find those folks and how were you received? You know, when you inform somebody who's a member of the Texas Border Volunteers that you're a documentary filmmaker, you know, from the godless country of Connecticut, um, how do they bring you into the fold? (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody we were filming with really understood the the scale of what we were after. They were maybe used to journalists who come and go very quickly in a day. Um, but we just kept turning up over and over again. And it took us three years of, of nagging Mike Vickers and sort of begging to get invited out on one of these nighttime operations. And uh, in terms of the way that it's represented in the film, we did make a decision not to lecture the audience. We didn't, we wanted to represent 360 degrees of what's happening in Brooks County and let the audience make up their own mind. We wanted to treat them as capable of doing that. But in order to do that, you have to witness. I mean, you have to see what's going on because it's so extreme that you have to see it with your own eyes. And that's where we felt the value of the film was. And so we go out with them on these operations. And, you know, some of them, we went out on a couple different nights. There wasn't a lot of action, frankly. And then afterwards, and this, this actually did not make it in the film, you know, cause they're, they're really upset that people are coming over, you know, across the border without inspection. And yet, if they don't get action that night, they're so disappointed. So there's this really weird, kind of ugly sporting uh, aspect to what they do. And then just real quick, the last thing that you said I think is really important. Many of them are afraid of terrorists coming through. I think this is one of the places where we could have a bipartisan solution because if you... If you open the safe, regular routes of migration, you can take people's names. You can do background checks. You can know who's coming and going. But when you push them into remote areas, that's when you have no idea who's coming through. And if if people who are uh, on the conservative end of the political spectrum are concerned about that, you know, I really think that this is something they ought to seriously consider is regularizing migration and controlling it in a way that allows us to keep track of people. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking when I was watching the film, you know, reasonable people can have different opinions around migration, you know, immigration quotas and the process and, you know, and all of that. But, you know, when you have 20 something years evidence that this so-called deterrent is actually it's it's not inhibiting the flow 
of of uh, illegal migration, and people are dying. If you could not to get graphic, but Lisa, the talk about how these people are dying in this um, uh, in this desert environment once they try to get around that checkpoint, which is seventy miles north of the border. Well, without giving too much away, um, you know, water is key when you're walking through the desert in the summer. So migrants tend to come during the summer months or the hotter months because Brooks County is known um, to be a place where people go hunting and they hunt usually between October and March. And then, you know, the migrants are not coming in this time because there's hunting and, and guns and shooting and, you know, it's dangerous. So they come during the um, the hotter months and they need water, um, obviously, because it's so hot. But, you know, they're given a jug of water when they're dropped off at the b- below the checkpoint. But, you know, they're filling their water troughs. They're filling their water jugs up in the with the water troughs on these ranches that are not for human beings they're for cattle. So um, it, the water's not drinkable and what happens is they get sick and then they get dehydrated and they they die um so that's the very common way people are dying um and so it's you know uh, but as jeff says um and as you said, we, we know this. It's been two decades of this. This is not new. This is not a new story. Um, it's not a new issue. So, you know, we we understand that these checkpoints and, and the deterrence doesn't work. It just makes it more dangerous, meaning it doesn't work in the sense that it doesn't prevent people from coming because they're all they're going to have reasons to come. Um, the, the situation in um, Central America is dire. And so a lot of people are leaving, fleeing for their lives. They have no choice. They're not coming to America. They're leaving their home. So yeah, and to that point, there's 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 one young man uh, who is being asked, I think, by a sheriff as to, uh, you know, he gets picked up and uh, the sheriff. And, and I have to say, all of the law enforcement that was um, depicted in your film uh, really did show, as you mentioned earlier, you know, a sense of duty, but a, sen- a real sense of humanity also in the staggering numbers that they're up against. There was um, one deputy, I believe, who who said that he was the sole deputy deputy responsible for 1000 square miles. This individual that was picked up, he's talking to the officer about, you know, he had a job and life was good. And then something took place to make life just unacceptable. And my presumption was this was a role of cartels, whether there was coercion in being involved or extortion involved. Did did you find anything else out about that that young man's backstory and, you know, what led him to make the decisions that he made? Because he was also a young dad and, you know, he had children. I think it's exactly what you said. Um, He had a business and the cartels uh, just took the business away from him. They said, "Okay, you're going to share this business with us. And, you know, he so he basically didn't have a job and he was you know, because he wasn't part of the cartels, he wasn't able to get any more work um, in his small 
town. So um, he was, you know, for economic reasons, he was um, forced to leave his town and, and try to come to the U.S. in order to make some money to send it back to his family. For each of you, I'm curious how either similar or dissimilar this film experience was to um, some prior documentary work that you've done. Well, you know, Lisa's done more than I have. I, my my background's a little more in scripted filmmaking, but the documentaries that I had done were <laughs> they were nothing like this. I mean, this was a a verite documentary, meaning. Um, a lot of it is observational filming. You know, it's not interview driven. It's not driven by archival footage. And so those take a long time because you just have to follow life uh, and see, you know, and wait for something to happen essentially. And I had never, I mean, we were filming for four years and I think overall we're six years into this project. I, I almost can't believe that documentary filmmakers can spend that long. And that's not uncommon. No, I mean, it, it is not. you know, I think I'm going to, if I stay in documentary, I'm going to have to measure my remaining time in, in, in units of completed films. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He lived to be 109. He made two films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear that all the time. And, and, you know, part of it, I think, is uh, the nature of the stories that are being told. But oftentimes it's, you know, it's due to funding and we've got this amount of money that's going to get us this far down the road, uh, et cetera. How about you, Lisa? How, how was this experience, if you can draw a comparison between this experience and other filmmaking experiences that you've had? I'm trying to think how it has anything to do with anything I've made in the past. Um, But that in some ways that might be true of every film. I think every film um, is a new challenge. Um, You're working with new people. Um, You know, I, I think one thing that was different with this film is Jeff and I collaborated on it together. And then there's a editor also um, one of the producers of the film, Jacob Ricca. And so having a team, it, it continues to be amazing to have a team of people because it's really hard to do everything yourself. We also had good funding for this film ultimately. And that's been wonderful as well. Um, but, but I would say that, um, emotionally and physically this film has been continues to be draining. Um, it, it was physically challenging at times. Um, and definitely emotionally challenging at times, But it was worth it in the sense that I think this is a really important story for everyone to see and understand um, what's going on. So it it was worth it. I think it took some years off my life, um, but I'm I'm proud of it. I'm I'm glad we did it. Um, And we continue to work on it all the time because there's so much work to be done with the impact campaign. Um, so it's very much, you know, part of our everyday working, um, right now and, um, and will be until I just can't take it anymore. But I, you know, I, I, I do think this is something that everyone needs to know about. If you live in this country, you need to understand what's going on. And I I don't think anyone here is going to be happy knowing that this is going on in their country. So as the film is uh, making the uh, film festival circuit um, over the past couple of months and, and really being recognized um, 
uh, for the excellent film that it is. Case in point, uh, we were all just chatting about Newburyport, Massachusetts, up where I happen to be recording this interview. Just last weekend, the film won Best Documentary Feature at the Newburyport Documentary Film Festival, but it's also won Best Documentary Feature at a, at a handful of others. As you're bringing the film around, what have you observed about different audience reactions uh, based on where the film is being screened? We did a tour of Texas last month. Um, and, and um, you know, there were some audiences there with people um, who had differing opinions about immigration than we do. And um, that's really important. Um, we really want everyone to see this film, not just people you know, in our little communities um, who, you know, agree with with our thinking about immigration and immigrants. So um, that was really meaningful to have a Q&A and to have a discussion with people in the audience who didn't necessarily uh, agree with us and agree with the value of of immigrants in this country. Um, and, um, you know, you the the film really moved them. And so I, I felt like, OK, this is you know, this is great um, that even people who we don't necessarily have agree with, you know, really see um, the importance of change and that that people don't continue to die this way. And I have to say, it it, it is a very non-judgmental film. There's no narration. There's no, you know, uh, voice of God, omniscient narrator who's breaking up good guys, bad guys. Quite obviously, there's no such thing as an entirely objective documentary. And, you know, one person could say, well, why are they concentrating on the uh, the poor families? What about uh, the person who lost a job, theoretically, or whatever that phantom job is that was going to be lost? But have you included any of the people that are in the film uh, as the film is being rolled out? Um, for, I'm, I'm curious as to if you've maintained communication with Eddie and, you know, sort of his thoughts around his story getting out in the world. We have. In fact, um, Eddie does a lot of Q&As with the film and he attends screenings and same for Kate Spradley, as well as the Roman family. In fact, for us, I think that was, uh, in terms of whether we got the story right, I think the families were sort of our North Star. And so we're really happy that they're supportive of the film and they continue to be uh, in, engaged in the impact campaign. And you mentioned Kate Spradley. She is the forensic anthropologist uh, who is his sort of um, leading the charge for finding these uh, remains and identifying them. Uh, and it's a it's a tall hill to climb. Yeah, we were just in Washington, D.C., doing a screening and, and various other things there. And Kate Bradley was with us for that. So we, I think we really feel fortunate that we have these partnerships with these various um, participants of the film um, and, you know, and, and beyond. So we, you know, we've um, made connections with people and organizations 
in Washington, D.C. Um, who are working on border policy. And I feel extremely fortunate that they are not only supportive of the film, but helping us to get it in front of the right people. Um, so th this is our goal right now is to to do that. Um, not only, you know, it's going the film's going to be screening on or, or broadcast on PBS in late January. Millions of people will see it then um, and we'll have impact screenings um, leading up to the broadcast and beyond. But really getting the film in front of lawmakers is, is key. So um, we're, you know, we're filmmakers. We're not policy people. So we um, we've been very fortunate to connect with a lot of really great people. I had a question about uh, how is the South Texas Human Rights Center funded as of now? Well, it's it's mostly donations. I mean, I think Eddie may have had a couple of very small grants uh, a while back, but that's one thing that is worth mentioning. If people are moved by the stories in the film and they want to do something, they can support Eddie's effort. I mean, they can send him a check, send him a few dollars because it, putting that water out in the desert is it is being used. It is saving lives. And for a very small amount of money, uh, it can he can purchase more water stations. He can maintain them. So that's one thing you can do, a very simple thing you can do. That's excellent to know. And Lisa, you mentioned a PBS airing in January of next year. Will that be on Independent Lens or POV? Yes, the film will be on Independent Lens on January 31st, 2022. Okay. Uh, and then it will be streaming for a month after that on the PBS website. Excellent. All right. And if folks uh, around the country listening to this podcast um, want to get some idea about uh, if and when the film might be coming to a film festival near them, let's point them to the right website. What would that be? That's uh, missinginbrookscounty.com. And we have a calendar on there that has all the upcoming screenings and they can find one near them. And some of them are actually virtual and you can do it nationwide. So you just pick one out, you can get a ticket. And uh, coming up in November, it's actually going to go on to some streaming platforms in North America. Um, so, uh, you know, places like Amazon and iTunes where you can watch the film, you know, get it for a night or two and watch the film. Excellent. Well, the film, again, is missing in Brooks County, and I've been speaking with Jeffrey Bemis and Lisa Malamont, the producing team behind this very powerful and insightful movie. And I thank you for your time, and I thank you for the film. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you.